0: Hey there, my name is Roy, and I am the lead pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly. And you're joining us for our online service today. We're glad that you've tuned in. We're, we're so glad that you've j- chosen to worship God with us. And so I, I just hope you grab another cup of coffee, just kind of settle in as we dig into God's Word. But well, we are into a series called Summer Hymns, and we're into part seven. We're deep into the summer, it's an eight part series. And a man dies and he goes to heaven. Of course, Peter meets him at the, at the pearly gates, and he says to him, here's how it works. You need 100 points to make it into heaven. So you tell me all the good things you've done, and I'll determine how good they were, and I'll give you a certain number of points to, depending on how good it actually was. And when you reach 100 points, well, then you get in. Well, okay, the man says, well, first of all, I was married to the same woman for 50 years. I was faithful to her always, even in my heart. Well, that's wonderful, said Peter. That's worth three points right there. Oh, three points okay he said well i attended church all my life and i supported the ministry with my tithes and my and my service and terrific said peter that's definitely worth a point point. one point okay well okay well how about this i started a soup kitchen in my city and i served at a homeless a veterans facility and peter said well fantastic that that's got to be two more points Two points to the man I'm only up to six points. At this rate, the only way I'm getting into heaven is by the grace of God. Peter said, exactly. Come on in. Well, like I said, we're, we're in part seven of this eight-part series. And in this series, we've been looking at these, the, the hymns, the stories behind them, and the biblical truths that they're tied to. And today's hymn is Amazing Grace. Probably the best and well-known uh, well-known hymn in history. It's estimated that "Amazing Grace" is performed close to 10 million times every year. It's been covered 1,100 times on different musical albums. Uh, artists like um, Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, Johnny Cash, and even Elvis Presley have covered it on their albums. "Amazing Grace" was written by a man named John Newton. Now, John Newton grew up in England in the early 1700s. His mother passed away at the age when he was just six years old. Newton's father was a sailor, and he brought John Newton on his first voyage at the age of 11. He would then follow in his father's footsteps, and he would become a sailor. Well, later, Newton was called into service with the British Army, and after some rough days at sea, Newton abandoned the crew. But he was later caught, beaten, put in shackles, and demoted to crewman. He would later convince the crew to exchange him with another ship, a slave trading ship. There, he was treated incredibly poor by the slave trader. And eventually, Newton became the captain of his own slave trading ship, called the Greyhound. And one time on a voyage from England or to England back from Africa, the ship was struck by a treacherous storm. The, the storm ripped off the, the the sail and ripped off half the side of the boat, and they thought they were going to die. They thought that. That this was it. And right there and then, Newton made a vow with God that he would be a believer if God saved him. Which he did. He was, he was, safely, he was safely home. But he kind of forgot about his faith a little bit at that point. He did, vow, he did start to become a little bit more Christ-like, or what he thought it was. Which in itself was a miracle, because especially in the way he spoke about God around other people. He disdained God. Nonetheless, his newfound conversion meant he treated his slave cargo better. He thought that's what it was like that 's what it was to be christ like it wasn 't until seventeen fifty five that Newton would retire from sailing, and his faith would begin to open his eyes of its own wretchedness. He became increasingly disgusted by the slave trade industry and the role that he played in it for years. Years later, he would be influential in helping. slavery be abolished in britain newton would later go into ministry in 1769 newton began writing a new hymn for every sunday night service combining his lyrics with a common tune when amazing grace was first sung in 1773 it was sung to a different tune than what we sing it to now It was sung to a a number of different tunes, in fact. The tune that we know today merged together in 1835, long after Newton had died. And that's a song. That's the song, Amazing Grace. Well, some of Newton's last words recorded were this. My memory's nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. Amazing Grace is a song many of you have sang for years you know many of the words, but I don't know if we fully grasp these two words, especially individually, amazing and grace. Amazing means overwhelmed or, or confounded with sudden surprise or wonder. Have you ever been overwhelmed? Have you ever been confounded It also means stunned, dazed, confused, like what you've just seen, what you've just heard, what you've just experienced, like you can't even comprehend. Did that really just happen? Grace, on the other hand, grace is something that you hope for when you mess up. Grace is something you know you don't deserve. See, maybe for you it was, it was when you were younger, maybe, maybe you smashed up the family car and you knew you had to tell mom and you knew you had to tell mom and dad. And as you rehearsed your speech on the way home, you're, you're hoping their response will be something of grace. You knew you were driving too fast and you knew you weren't paying attention. And it was totally your fault. The police report confirms it. And you know you're busted. You know you should be grounded. And you know you probably will lose your driving privileges for a while. You know what you deserve, but you're hoping for grace. Or perhaps you got caught stealing at work. Maybe perhaps you got caught skipping school. Maybe your wife discovered your browser history. There's no one to blame, there's no excuse. You are guilty. And in that moment, what you're looking for is grace. You're looking for someone to give you something that you know you don't deserve. Now see, on the other side of it, we aren't that quick to hand out grace. When we know that we are coming face-to-face with someone who is in the wrong, especially when I'm the one or someone I love has been hurt by their wrongdoing. And there lies the conflict. When I receive grace that I don't deserve, it's stunning, it's overwhelming, it's confounding, and it's life-giving. But grace, when it's required of me, it's a little more difficult to dish out. Grace is undeserved and unearned favor. You can't deserve grace. I I once heard a pastor saying that feeling like you deserve grace is the same as planning your own surprise party. The moment you plan your own surprise party, it eliminates the surprise. In the same way, the moment you think you deserve grace, it voids it as grace. You can hope for grace, you can ask for grace. You can beg for grace, but as soon as you think you deserve it, it's no longer grace. Then here's a twist. You can't actually come to a place where you can receive grace as long as you think you deserve it. And grace can only be experienced in the context of a relationship. There is no grace outside of relationship. And grace can only come in relationship where there is an imbalance of power somewhere. Where I have every right to be angry. I have every right to punish or seek payment or forgiveness. And I choose not to. I have the upper hand in the situation in relationship with you. And I choose not to exercise my advantage. And this is what makes Christianity so unique. Grace. Grace. This is why God had to show up in human form. Grace is completely relational, and you can't understand grace outside of a relationship. This is why, for Christians, Christmas is such a big deal. Because God entered our world through Jesus and modeled grace for us. For God's grace to be known by us, it had to be personal. Jesus made it personal. And so John not John Newton, Newton, but John, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples. Years after Jesus' death and just before John's own death, documents what he experienced. He gives us the gospel of John. And he, he documents his relationship with his Lord and the grace that he experienced and what he saw. In an attempt to convey what he experienced, he begins with this statement in the first chapter of John, in verse 14, he says, the Word, being Jesus, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And John would say, that's right. God lived among us. The creator of all things. I know. I know it's hard to believe. And if I didn't experience, I I don't know if I would believe it either. But I did. And then he says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And what he's saying is this isn't a myth or this isn't a passed down legend We, not just me, but we, there was a bunch of us, and and it wasn't a dream, and it it wasn't an illusion, and it wasn't that we ate some bad fish the night before, because we actually lived with him for three years. We sat under his teaching. We saw him do incredible things. But here's what he was like, and this is how he ends this verse. He says he was full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. John says that Jesus was full of grace and truth because it's hard to be full of both. This past week I've been helping out at the church here with um, a kids' camp. And you can see it in some kids. You, you can kind of spot it. That you can spot it when a, when a kid has a parent, has two parents, and they're both grace. Because you can tell that, that this kid. Does what they want to an extent, and they never have heard very, it's very rare they've heard a a tough word. On the other hand, you can also see when a kid has two truth parents, they're a little more withdrawn, a little more reserved, because they've never received grace. They just receive tough words all the time. Grace and truth, it's a better combination. And John watched as Jesus never shied away from the truth, yet he never withheld grace. John says he was full of both. He called sin what it was, sin. He called sinners sinners. And then he laid down his life for those same sinners. Truth and grace. And it was this combination that would lead John to conclude later in John 4 that God is love. As a parent, you know this. If you shy away from telling your kids what they need to hear for their own good, then you're missing a component of love because you're not doing truly what's best for them. On the other hand, if you're always lecturing them and you never show them any compassion or mercy or grace, well, you're also missing a component of love. And so John watched as Jesus was full of grace and full of truth and came to the conclusion that God is love. John was also there when Jesus called Matthew a tax collector. And Matthew records this interaction in his gospel, but what he doesn't record is the awkwardness that had to have been there. It just simply says as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. That's all it says. But there had to be some whispering. There had to be some side conversations and some looks that happened. Because as a tax collector, Matthew was despised. One, because, well, he collected taxes. But but also because he would often take a cut for himself above what he was supposed to. And also, as a Jew, he was being farmed out by the Romans to collect from his own people. And he was seen as a traitor. And he would do this just for his own wealth. So while he had lots of money, he had very few friends. And so when Jesus told Matthew to follow him, I mean, maybe some of the crowd heard this. A rabbi asking a tax collector to follow. And maybe some of the crowd just instinctively laughed. Like, this is God. Obviously, he's joking. He's actually mocking this tax collector. It's hilarious. Until they're like, wait. Is he serious? Perhaps Peter behind no rabbi what are you doing i mean i i don't think i don't think you want this guy to be part of our group and if he's going to be part of our group i don't know if i want to be part of our group and he also there was a problem too the disciples are like jesus you didn't even ask him to repent when you said come follow me you didn't even ask him to give back what he's taken and make that right before he he comes follow You just said, come follow me. You didn't require anything from him. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're not sure about God. Maybe you're not sure about the whole, if you truly believe. and Jesus would say to you, that's okay. Follow me. You're invited. I'm not requiring anything of you. Just, just. Come follow me, but I'll warn you right now, if you follow me long enough, you will believe. And that's what happened this week at kids' camp a little bit, as we were leading a kids' camp. See, we know there's a couple generations that are growing up that really don't have a basic understanding of the stories of the Bible. That, that's kind of where our society is at right now. There's a lot of people who don't understand the stories of the Bible. They have no faith background. or they have, There's a lot of people who really don't have an understanding of who G- Jesus really is, what he's all about. But I had some conversations this week with some kids, some younger kids, that have never heard of God. They have no concept of what or who God is. And so this week we introduced some kids to God. A God who created them, a God who loves them dearly and has a plan for their lives. We introduced them to Jesus. We introduced them to this whole concept of salvation and heaven and at one moment, we asked the kids if they really wanted to put their faith and trust in Jesus to take a step of faith and ask God to forgive them. Now, do I believe every six or seven or eight-year-old really fully understand and understood the, the step they'd taken? I think some of them did. But for some of them, Jesus invited them to follow. Take a step and then watch what I'm about to do in your life. That's all I need of you right now. I don't need you to understand fully. I just need you to come follow me. And this is what Matthew experiences. A personal God that invites him to follow. And then Jesus makes it more awkward. He invites himself over to Matthew's house for dinner and tells him to invite his tax collector friends. And I can imagine what's going through Matthew's mind. I'm going to invite my friends over, Rabbi, but... You're probably not going to like them, and to be honest, I, I, don't know if they're going to like you. I mean, we're just from two different worlds. I don't know how this is going to work. It's probably one of the most awkward dinners ever. Peter doesn't want to be there, and Andrew's kind of embarrassed. Doesn't want anybody to see anybody see him go into the tax collector's house, and John's looking at his watch. I know he doesn't have a watch. Matthew's watching. Is he watching this whole thing go down? Is He's watching his friends interact, and imagine Jesus just sitting there smiling. He loves it. It's messy. It's awkward. But so is grace. Grace, when it's truly amazing, is confusing. It's confounding. It's awkward. And it's messy. Meanwhile, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they hear about this situation... And they send a message into the house because they weren't invited to this, this, uh, this dinner party, but they wouldn't have come even if they were because they wanted nothing to do with the tax collectors. And they say to the disciples, "What does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, if he's truly a rabbi, if he truly is a man of God, he should be eating with other men of God like us, not these riffraffs. So someone relays the message to Jesus, and which... I assume the tax collectors are all listening in because they're thinking, yeah, Jesus, why are you eating with us? This doesn't make any sense at all. And then Jesus makes an awkward dinner party even more awkward because he doesn't sugarcoat his answer. And he says, tell those guys outside, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Imagine John's trying not to look the other tax collectors in the eye, And Peter maybe smirks because he loves loves Jesus' boldness. And the tax collectors are thinking, wait, is he calling us sick? And Jesus says, oh, and tell the Pharisees this. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so Jesus tells the Pharisees, who pride themselves in their knowledge of the Scriptures and their ability to teach and discern what the Scriptures mean, he tells them to go and learn, and he quotes Hosea 6.6, which is such a dig at them. And again, I'm sure Peter laughs to himself because he loves it. And likely everyone smiles or chuckles, even the tax collectors. Uh, they, They laugh at how direct Jesus is with these religious snobs. And then he says... For I have come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. Then we go a little bit further. There's one day Jesus, is, he goes up to the temple in Jerusalem and he's, he's teaching on the, the steps. And this is the holiest place in Judaism. And suddenly a group of Pharisees bring a woman forward that was caught in adultery. And they're there to trap Jesus. And I imagine this woman is terrified. According to the law, they say, we are required to stone her for her adultery. We're required to kill her. And, and Jesus looks around. And maybe he locks eyes with this woman who's terrified. And then he calls her bluff. Because he knows there's no way they're going to do this right at the temple. And as he surveys the Pharisees, and he notices something's missing. He notices what's missing is Compassion and mercy, and love. And so it says, he bent down and he wrote in the dirt something with his finger. Then he stands up and he says to them, okay, go ahead, do it, stone her. But you better be without sin in your life before you even think about throwing anything. And again, he stoops down and he writes, and biblical scholars and experts have guessed for years what Jesus may have written because it doesn't tell us. But I wonder if he wrote something like, what if this was your daughter? And this woman is cowering, she's shaking, terrified, crying. But the next sound that she hears is the sound of stones dropping to the ground. And when she looks up, it's just her and jesus left and imagine jesus looks at her and he smiles and it's probably the first bit of compassion that she's seen in ours and and john tells us he was a bystander he watched as his master his rabbi showed so much grace in that moment but in case, he, he documents in case anyone wondered where jesus stood on truth he records that jesus said to her go now And leave your life of sin. He says, I don't condemn you. But I also don't condone your behavior. Leave your life of sin. Grace in full. Truth in full. And then John documents what may be the most extreme example of grace. He was the eyewitness to what you would truly call amazing grace. After Jesus is arrested and tried unfairly and beaten, it says two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, or Golgotha, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And it says the people stood watching. Now, let that sink in for a moment. You have this horrifying scene Jesus has been beaten, he's been whipped, he's been spit on, he's been dragged across the city, he's been been nailed to a cross to be killed, and people like spectators at a sporting competition stood around and watched. And it says, and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one then one of the criminals that has been hung beside Jesus joins in in the mockery and chastises Jesus. But the other criminal would have none of it. And he said, don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for what we are getting, for for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong You see, when you read through that, we find this sentence is really packaged nicely together. But if you understood crucifixion, if you understood that crucifixion, in crucifixion to breathe and to talk was incredibly exhaustive and painful. You see, death would not come from the nails that were driven through your hands and your feet. Death would come from suffocation. Inhaling would be easier, but exhaling would require strength because, in order to do so, you would have to push yourself up. But your arms would be dislocated within moments, and so the only way that you possibly could push yourself up is from your legs, and that way you could exhale, exhale, or speak. Well, it says the men to the right and the left of Jesus had their legs broken. And the reason that the Romans did that is so that they would die quicker, so they wouldn't be able to push up. And so this statement and conversation would likely have come in short, drawn-out sentences. And so this man, in excruciating pain... He understands that if heaven is only for the righteous, those that make the right decisions all the time, that he does not deserve to be there with Jesus. But in an act of desperation, he puts his hope in something he doesn't even believe he deserves. Grace. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, if you were still around at this point, and you were able to make out what was being said in this broken up conversation, perhaps you would have rolled your eyes. Like, you're right, buddy. Jesus is going to extend mercy to someone who has done nothing in their life to deserve heaven. Someone who can't even make a promise to make things right from now on because your now on is, is, is almost up. This is it. You have no bargaining power, and you have no hope. So save your breath, criminal. The question is, does God really answer the prayers of sinners? And Jesus would say, that's the only kind of prayers there are. And so Jesus responds in a way that shakes up what everyone thought this man deserved. And if karma was a real thing, this man was getting his. Instead, Jesus would redefine mercy, and he would change what they knew of grace. And Jesus answered him. Now remember, this was excruciating pain for Jesus also to respond, but he says this. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus would tell a man who, for all we know, has done more bad than good, Jesus would tell a man that has, had, that has no time to settle his affairs and make things right. Jesus would tell a man that his future will be the same as John's, who was watching from below. John, who had spent three years under Jesus' ministry, and would devote the rest of his life to spreading the love of God throughout the world. And later, when John would relay this story to the other disciples, I'm sure they were stunned. I'm sure they were confounded. It was scandalous, Jesus, when you asked Matthew to follow. It was shocking when you offered grace to that woman at the temple who was caught in adultery. But this, how do we explain this? How is this, how is this fair? And like life, grace is not fair. And that's the beauty of it. Grace is never fair. Peter, who would turn his back on Jesus when asked to identify with Jesus during his trial, later Jesus would put Peter in charge of the whole movement. Peter, who'd already failed the job interview, Jesus restored him and put him in charge. Saul of Tarsus, Saul killed Christians, but Jesus would recruit him, change his name to Paul, and allow him to become the face of evangelism and write half half of the New Testament. And over and over again, Jesus gave people what they didn't deserve. Because as John said, he was full of grace and full of truth. John Newton was a foul-mouthed and angry sailor. He was a slave trader. He treated his cargo less than human. He spoke poorly of God to anyone who would listen, but when John Newton humbled himself and submitted his life to Jesus, he got what he didn't deserve. Amazing grace. And that's what's available to you and that's what's available to me. Amazing grace. It doesn't matter what you've done up to this point in your life. It doesn't matter what karma should have have to say on this matter. Amazing grace is never fair. And for your sake and mine, thank God that it's not. Let's pray. Father God, grace is so hard to get our heads around. But we are so thankful for it. God, through our sin, we should be disqualified from being able to enter into heaven. And, and like the man in the original story, we think sometimes if we do enough good that that will let us in, but we can never do enough good. We can never meet the standard that it, it, it is for a holy God. And that's where grace comes in. That's where grace steps in, and when we put our trust in and we put our faith in you and we accept you as our Lord and Savior. We get what we don't deserve. And that is eternity with you. And so God, I pray for those that are listening today and they're not sure where they stand with you or if they truly believe, God, I pray, number one, that they would take a step. Like Matthew, they would follow without having to do anything. But I also pray that they would be open to your love your compassion, your mercy, and your grace. And Lord, we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.